Hi, welcome to the sixth episode of the Enterprise Monetization Podcast, and this is your host, Sandeep Jain. In this podcast, we invite thought leaders from monetization space, that is CPQ, coding, billing, so that you can learn about challenges, opportunities, and best practices in enterprise monetization. Today, I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Martin Gontovnikas, uh, or short uh, for Gonto. Gonto has a very unique profile that he is an engineer turn marketeer, turn advisor, and investor. Uh, Gonto was the sixth hire at OddZero, which some of you may know was recently acquired by Okta for uh, a mere $6.5 billion. Uh, Gonto joined them as a developer advocate, uh, and eventually he became the leader of all the marketing and the growth team at OddZero. Uh, Gonto left OddZero earlier this year uh, to start Hyper Growth Partners, uh, which is a sweat equity advisory firm that helps B2B startups to achieve hyper growth. With that, uh, a very warm welcome to you, Gonto. Thank you for inviting. Awesome. So hey, before we go further into the, the depths of the, the monetization, uh, do you want to share some quick fun fact about you uh, to the audience? Yeah, one thing that, I'm, that it's kind of crazy for me is that I did stand-up comedy when I was younger. When I was um, 16, year, 16 years old, I was very, very shy. I didn't talk to people and I wanted to start going out with more women, to be honest. Um, so I didn't know how to hack being less shy. And I figured out that if I did stand-up comedy and I exposed myself to talk to others and to be funny and just do that, I was going to be like learn how to do that better. So I did two years of stand-up comedy, did some actually presentations in a theater. And after that, actually, I am much less shy. So I'm very happy to have done that. <laughs> That's amazing. And where was that gone to? Was it in back in Argentina or was it here? Yeah, that was back in Argentina um, when I was basically in high school. That's that's amazing. So maybe you are a stand-up comedian turned engineer turned. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't that good as a stand-up comedian though. Why did you stop it? Like, like do, do you still do that or uh, with your friends or something? I don't do that anymore. Um, I then switched to do improv because I thought it was more fun and it was more me. Um, like stand-up comedy is too much preparation. I don't like planning as much. Uh, so I've done it for a lot of years, but then I stopped. And I don't know why I stopped. I actually should come back to it. <laughs> okay, maybe there's a, there is a nudge for you there to go and experiment. Exactly. Wow. Cool. So hey, we, we know that you started at Zero as a developer advocate, but I'm amazed by your journey there. Um, and I think it's interesting for, I think people would love to know like why the shifts that happened in your career and why, and what's this backstory there? Yeah. So I actually started programming and coding when I was very young. I was like 12 and I started because my uncle was a systems engineer and he had like an ERP company here in Argentina. So I coded for a lot of years. I started with Visual Basic 6, which I feel a bit ashamed of. Um, I then studied systems engineering and worked as an engineer, engineering manager and architect for 10 years, maybe like nine years, something like that. Um, on the last few years, as, as I was doing that, I started to build more open source projects. Two of the open source projects that I built became really, really popular. So I started to be invited to conferences around the world to speak about it and to companies to give courses. When that happened, I realized that it was more interesting and more fun to me to actually make the open source repositories popular rather than, than, than building them myself. 
And that's when I always say that the, the dark side was calling me. Um, from there, I actually remember that I, my ex-girlfriend like finished a relationship with me. I had like a crisis of like, what the fuck do I want to do next? I, there was a guy called James Ward that I really liked what he did. I actually Googled him. I found him on LinkedIn. He was doing developer evangelism. I didn't know what that was. So I went and Googled it again. I found a book by Chris Kayman. I stayed the entire night up. I read the book and I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. So I started applying to companies then to do developer evangelism because it was a bit of what I was doing before, like writing blog posts, speaking at conferences, but as a full-time job. I interviewed in like Mozilla. I interviewed in Outsido. I also interviewed in a few others. And I ended up choosing to go to Outsido, which was a very small company back then. I was a sixth employee and the first marketing hire, even though I was not a, a marketer. Um, when I was there, I was basically writing the SDKs, being the sales engineer in the call, writing the documentation, writing blog posts, speaking at conferences, and basically a bit of, of everything. And most of the signups, because it was a product that developers could basically try out, most of the people who were registering and sign up, uh, signing up to the product were developers. They eventually liked it, they contacted us, and they paid. So because I was bringing basically all of that through um, giving some of these talks, the CEO gave me the opportunity to lead the self-service team. The self-service team was basically this idea of bringing signups. Signups will then use the platform either pay self-service with a credit card or sign up with enterprise, which now we call it as product-led growth, but this was eight years ago. Product-led growth was not a thing, I think, so it was self-service. And from there, that started, like I started to try experimentation. It worked. And eventually I was given the opportunity to run all of the marketing and growth team at Outsido. So when I left Outsido seven years into the future, my team was 100 people. So it was a big, big team. And I thought I, I like more like smaller teams. Um, I don't like the responsibilities of a 1,000 company, people company. So that's why I now I'm working on hyper growth partners and doing advice on growth and marketing to other companies who are at a similar stage that I went through the entire journey with without zero. I see. So, uh, we'll go to your odd zero journey in a second. But at Hypergrowth Partners, do you work with like seed, series A, B? Like, do you have any preference? What kind? Yeah, of we usually look. So we look for companies that have found product market fit, and what they want now is to scale their go-to-market efforts with a low CAC, so with a low customer acquisition costs. There's no easy way to find product market fit. So what we usually do is we look for startups who are at least at 2 million of ARR approximately up to something like 60 or 80 million. And we work closely together to do an audit first in the company. We talk to prospects, we talk to customers, we talk to the team, we look at their marketing technology stack. We then together with them build the go-to-market strategy, set up what are the KPIs and the teams that we think that they should have and then run experiments using our experimentation framework to drive that hyper growth um, with a low customer acquisition cost. So usually I would say they are series A or V company, the minimum that we would look because seed is a bit too early um, for us because we help with advice, but we do not help with execution. So we expect a marketing team to be there to execute on some of the strategies and things um, that we talk about What's different about us is that we do not charge cash, we charge equity to the companies that we help, which is where we say that we are like a VC of time and knowledge. So we don't put money, but we invest five to 10 hours a week 
in your startup and you're gonna pay us equity in exchange. And that way we have a high skill in the game to help you succeed. That's amazing, Gunther. Besides your detailed explanation, I like the specificity of the things that you talked about. So I love this. Uh, so let's go back to Auth0. So the first thing is, uh, what is your thought about hiring? You said you're the sixth hire, but you're not writing code, but you're the developer evangelist. So what's your thoughts about that? Like companies would think at that stage, I need to hire a front-end engineer or a, or a, or a back-end engineer. Um, nobody thinks about hiring a developer evangelist so early. So could you talk about that? Yeah, I think that was actually a very good call from Matias and Eugenio, the two co-founders of OutZero. Like they already have the product, the first version of the product mostly built at that stage because the other five hires were all engineers and one designer, basically. So they didn't want to continue hiring engineers, but at the same time, they didn't want to continue building the product without knowing if developers cared about it or not and what it meant. When I joined, there was only one go-to-market strategy that was already made, which was that they were sure, Eugenio and Matias, that they wanted developers to be the users of the product, to try it out and to sell to them if they enjoyed the product. And if that's the decision, then I actually do think that hiring a developer relations as the first marketing hire makes sense because they're gonna be the one who are gonna be creating the community and creating awareness through developers. And then in the beginning, we were getting a lot of feedback on things on the product that didn't work out or weren't great, et cetera. And I was sort of the conduit that was getting some of the feedback from the community and then feeding it back to the two founders and the engineering team to fix it. So that also helped a lot with product development um, in the beginning as well. Got it. I'm actually more interested uh, uh, in talking about the developer evangelism and we'll talk about that later in the podcast, but let, let's put the focus on why, why we are here today, which is code to cash. So can you talk about when you started the self-serve thing at Zero, and this was eight years ago, and if you can compare this with right now, like what's the, what are the challenges companies can, will face uh, when they're thinking about this? Could, could you help us with that? I, like we had so, so many challenges, I would say in, in the beginning. Um, so the first thing was we wanted to make sure that developers were aware and knew about Outzero. So our first challenges were about acquisition and awareness, I would say. So our focus was on bringing value to developers, but writing good quality content on how they could implement authentication, what is a refresh token, JSON web token, and a lot of multiple terms that are very technical and authentication or security related. The other thing we did a lot in the beginning was we betted a lot as well on communities. So AngularJS, which is a front-end framework, was just starting. It was the 0.6 version. And I was personally pretty sure that it was going to explode and be big. So what, what we did, for example, was we went to every conference in the world about AngularJS. And it wasn't only because of providing value to the listeners. It was only because it was also because we created a relationship with the speakers, because we saw them everywhere in the world and we drink beers or wine with them. They then started to share our content because it was good quality content. And in the Angular community, we became the thought leaders. Everybody was coming to us to ask us questions about authentication. And what I thought was important was being genuine. Meaning if somebody came and told me, hey, I want authentication with Twitter and Facebook, should I use Outzero? And the answer was no. Like if it's only that, it makes no sense. Like you should use it if you want multi-factor or this other thing or whatever. 
And that started to create trust in the community. So in the beginning, that community was the one that was bringing us a lot of people uh, to the content and those that were intrigued afterwards and then signing up, signing up to try out Cirio. So in the beginning, there were a lot of challenges more related to that um, than anything else, I would say. Um, a challenge a bit later on was activation. So now we have developers who are coming to the product, but in the first day, we were dropping 95% of them and only a few were staying. And that was because it was hard to understand the product. So we also focused a lot in the beginning on, okay, how can we make the onboarding easier for developers so they understand what's going on? How do we make it so that if the person we're signing up is not a developer, they follow another path because it doesn't make sense. Um, and we also started to think about how do we sell to them? Because at this point, the only way we were selling is developers liked it. They then click on talk to sales and they were coming to us inbound. It was the founders closing the deals in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So we started then hiring our first inbound like sales account executives who were basically closing deals that we were getting through talk to sales. And we were not reaching out to developers at all. And we actually got to 20 million in ARR by doing this, basically. We didn't do anything else. We didn't have any more sales rather than inbound sales and waiting for people to raise their hand when they needed, when they needed help, uh, for example. In this 20 million ARR, were people buying through credit cards or was it all sales done through salespeople inside sales? There were, there were people buying with credit card, but I would say it was maybe 10% of the revenue. 90% was through sales. But the difference was that our sales team did not contact them did not contact any sign up. And we were basically just getting people to try the products, use it, setting it up in their app, and then clicking into the sales to say, hey, I've implemented this in a pet project. I like it. We want to explore using it for our full use case. Can we talk? So there was still a sales process where the account executive was demoing it for their use case. A sales engineer was building a POC or doing a whiteboard session to showing how they could implement it. But the sales cycle was really short. It was like, between usually it was three months or under three months because they already tried it, they already implemented it. And it was more about making sure it worked for their specific use case at scale. Understood, understood. And Gonto, uh, uh, right now, if somebody is thinking about that sales motion, uh, are the tools in place where people can do that easily? Or do you think it's uh, there is some friction that people can expect there and why? Um, yeah, regarding the tooling, I think, for us, what was hard in the beginning was one, how, like getting people to raise their hand and then come to us, like was easy, of course, like, like this, they're just raising their hand. But in the fact, we started to think about what if they don't raise their hand and they need a little bit like a small push, for example. So some of the things we did in the beginning was, okay, we need a predictive scoring to know which of these people are using the product and we can predict they're gonna become an opportunity. So for that, for example, we ended up building it um, ourselves with an algorithm called Random Forests. So our data team built it, but um, there's a lot of tools like Madkudu or Infer that I think are amazing, actually building some of these scores um, for you and then helping you who you want to reach out and why. Other things that were a pain in the beginning was we had Intercom, for example, for sending emails, but then we had Salesforce, our CRM. And we, it was very hard to set up like tasks in Salesforce or for people to do something um, for an SDR or a salesperson if somebody had a high score or something similar. So it broke deeply and it was all manual in the beginning. And we ended up switching to Marketo, which I personally deeply hate 
but it had a really good integration with Salesforce. And it made it really easy to actually flow leads with a high score and similar um, to other places. We used the data warehouse a lot. And I actually think that was a really good decision. We were using Redshift, but there's others like Snowflake, but that was our source of truth. And that was actually John Gelsis, the CEO's decision. And I think he made a fantastic call there where that had all of the information and we use that to send information to Marketo, to Salesforce, to Intercom, to whatever it is. So then when we switch tools and when we share information between the tools, it made it so much easier to actually flow the information and flow the leads from one place to another. Did I hear you say, Gonto, that your source of truth for leads on the self-serve and the enterprise was one system, which was Redshift? Is that, is that what you said? Yeah, all of the leads were in Redshift. Like literally everything was going directly to the data warehouse. And then from the data warehouse, we were sending it to a Marketo or to a Salesforce or something similar. But as you said, the source of truth where we saved all of the leads information was always in the data warehouse. This is very interesting. You mentioned that, Gonto, because I've talked to several people who do this self-serve and enterprise sales. And half of the things are sitting in Marketo and half of the things are in Salesforce. And it's like there is Gonto sitting in, uh, in your self-serve and then Gonto is in Salesforce, is it the same Gonto? Is it different? And so there's a lead. They're trying to understand is it the same lead or not versus figuring out is this lead going to convert into an, an account? So it's very interesting. You, you had the single source of truth, which most companies don't. Uh, so when you, exactly. left, when you left Auth0, what does your code to cash stack look like? Uh, so which is your, like you have several channels, I suppose. So you had self-serve, you have enterprise sales. I don't know if partners were selling out zero or not. We were in the, when I left. Yes, we had partners selling out zero as well. So how does this whole system look like? So is uh, is it still Redshift as your single source of truth? So Redshift was still a single source of truth, but we were migrating when I left to Snowflake, which is another database. But still, it's a data warehouse, so it's similar. We were using Marketo for marketing automation. We were using um, Salesforce for the CRM. We had outreach for the sequences that were being sent by the SDRs on emails and calls and stuff like that. We were using a schedule of services on FD. We were using Six Sense for account-based marketing, understanding who was coming to our site and when. We were using Clearbit to do reverse GIP address on who's coming, even if they didn't enter their email. And we're also using it to enhance the information um, that we were getting from, from them as well, to then see if we could reach out or do something similar. We were also doing using Optimizely for both A-B testing on the website, as well as website personalization, where we were personalizing the content based on what they were using. We were using a, actually a custom-made CMS because Contentful didn't work well for us and we didn't like, we ended up doing something ourselves. I would have loved to use something different. The website front-end was also custom-made, but when, before I left, I wanted to switch to Webflow, which is like a no-code version for marketing websites. I'm a big fan of Webflow. We weren't able to, to switch um, in the end. And then we had a lot of random tools that we use for specific things like FunnelBeam to basically get information for ABM leads on specific categories of information that we wanted to see which companies we were going to target first and which ones later, um, for example. Um, but I think that that was our main stack. We also had HIP for analytics, which we were sending the data there from the website as well as from um, the data warehouse. And uh, 
I think that's it. Those were like the main main tools we were using. Subscription management. If I'm buying Auth0 from the web, there are probably different flavors. So which system has the knowledge on what flavor of subscription people are buying? So what subscription people have was all custom made and it was saved in the data warehouse, similarly in the source of truth that I was saying. So it was all in Redshift. For the payments with the credit card, we were using um, Stripe. So that was just Stripe. For the typical payments, it was something else, but our infrastructure for billing specifically was all custom built um, and it was connected through our pricing page as well as like the dashboard, the billing page um, as well. And all of it, the data ended in the data warehouse. Understood. And when people are, are connecting with you and say, I need a deal, I, give me a quote on Auth0, I have like thousand employees or whatever. Uh, was there a system uh, which is the CPQ that your salespeople were using? Was it like Salesforce? Was it something else? There was a CPQ. I honestly don't know which ones we, we were using. Understood. Uh, would you know what sort of the invoicing thing that people were using internally at Auth0? Like what is a system that was generating invoices? No, I don't know either. I know that for self-service, it was Stripe. So Stripe was generating invoices as well. But then for the contracts, um, well, I actually do know that we were using Intact uh, for most of the accounting things. So I, I probably guess we were using Intact for invoices as well. Understood. And what are the currencies and the number of SKUs that, that Auth0 was transacting in? So the main value metric was active users. So how many of your users were logging in in a given month? That was the main metric. We then had multiple plans that uh, had different features, like one had multi-factor, another one has uh, enterprise single sign-on or stuff like that. And what that changed is what is the price of our value metric? So what was the price of that active user? And then we had enterprise add-ons, which were additional things that you would add on top of the, of the plan. And we had like maybe six, I would say, additional SKUs. Um, so it was a bit complex uh, doing all of that together for doing the quotes. We also have volume discounts. Um, so it was a bit, a bit of, of a mess. Understood. Uh, and what currencies were you transacting? Was it like multiple currencies or was it few? For, like, for currencies on self-service, it was always converted to dollars. And the same was what we did for, um, for enterprise contracts. Like everything was eventually converted to dollars when we were getting it. But we had actually, we had like 45 maybe percent of the customers in the US, but we had a big distribution both in Europe and in APAC compared to other startups. So we were like doing the quotes in a local currency, but then when we got it to our bank, basically it was converted to US dollars. Understood, understood. Uh, in fact, a lot of companies that I speak with, they end up building their own billing system, which is what seems like you guys did but yes. it does not scale. And then they, uh, a big public company we have spoken with, uh, they have roughly like 140 engineers working just on their billing system. Uh, so it's not 10, it's not 14, it's 140. So uh, what's yeah, your- for, for, for us, we actually have two teams working on the billing infrastructure, both from the pricing page and the other one. So between engineers, product managers and designers, they were maybe, um, I would say 18 people or something like that working on it. Interesting. And the company I'm talking about, they have a revenue of 1.5, close to $1.5 billion in revenue. Wow. Just as a scale thing. So uh, if, if there is a Series A CEO 
who's thinking about or a CTO, uh, thinking about monetization for their company, and they know their customers can come from self-serve or this maybe direct sales motion. Uh, do you have any recommendation on how should they think about their structuring their monetization stack for like for good growth? Um, they do both bottoms up and top down, or you're, the question is if they if you are if they are trying to understand whether they should do bottoms up or top down first. Uh, actually, sir, if they know that they have to do both, right? So it seems that if you are in one of the swim lanes, the choices of the systems are relatively clear, but the problem happens when you start thinking uh, blended. And and you talked about one issue, which was lead management. In your case, it was one system of truth. But if your monetization is spread across two different systems of truth, it'll be hard to move customers along that. So do you have any suggestions on how people should think about structuring this? Yeah, like the main suggestion is related to what we shared about before, which is have a data warehouse, which is the source of truth. Like that's literally what helped us. In there, we had every account. We had their subscription model, like was it Stripe or was it Enterprise, as we called it? Um, and there, we also knew what was the plan that they were using. So if they moved from Stripe to Enterprise, for example, we would change that in the data warehouse through a, an internal tool that we that we built that the finance team was able to use. And that made things a lot more simpler um, for us. Otherwise, it would have been hell. <laughs> Interesting. And, and Gonzo, monetization today spans across different teams, like engineering, you're in marketing and growth. Uh, how should CEOs think about structuring this, this monetization teams, like considering it's a multi-function uh, task? I'm, yeah, I'm personally a big fan of cross-functional teams. So I think a cross-functional teams for this is something that would make sense. So what I, how I would think about it is, you have a team that has engineers, designers, and a product manager um, who are basically responsible for not only implementing the UI and the backend for the for how much to pay either self-service or enterprise as well, both in the pricing page on marketing as well as in the like billing page, let's say in the dashboard. And as part of that team, I would have a pricing, the pricing strategist or the pricing manager, which is just thinking about what are the skills, how do we implement them? So I think that having one team that does all of that makes sense. In our case, the people that were part of that team reporting into different areas. So that team had some engineers from marketing that were working on the pricing page, some engineers from product who were working on the dashboard. We had designers from both marketing and the product who were editing things. We had the pricing manager who was the one who was looking at the skills, was looking at what's working and what's not working. But actually the pricing manager started in marketing in my team and then eventually moved to product and reported to, to product. But I think having a cross-functional team that works together and their sole focus is that even if they are from multiple teams, but they are like one unit, is the best way to make sure that there are no silos and that everything is consistent. Interesting, interesting, Anto. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, uh, what do you think about usage-based billing? A lot of companies that we speak with uh, have are thinking about doing usage-based. Like earlier, it was one time, then it was subscriptions, and then now people are experimenting with how the usage thing looks like. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how companies should think about it? A and B, uh, from an implementation perspective, uh, would they face some challenges there? Yeah. So to me. Billing has to be related to what your aha moment metric is and what your habits metric is. 
And what I mean by that is, for example, for Out Zero, we had to figure out, okay, what is the aha moment? And for Out Zero, the aha moment was when they had the first user logging in through their application. So with the SDK implemented, and they were getting like a authenticated token in return. That was like, oh, wow. And then retention for us was 40 users logging in through the app in the first, uh, like every month, basically. And what that meant is that they were, they were doing that. They were going to stay with us for 80 months. So that we did a study actually of looking for correlation between which metric in the platform correlated higher to both long-term retention in the product as well as to opportunity creation and closing. So for, from a sales perspective. That's, Once the, we figure, that's yeah. the random forest thing that you talked about earlier that you guys built. That's the one? Uh, what you talked about random forest algorithm yes. doing the prediction. Was that the thing that did this correlation? It wasn't. So the random forest was more about like a scoring that we were using for leads. This was just an easy correlation on looking, okay, like we first started with qualitative interviews to understand what was the aha moment and why they care. They gave us like eight options. From those eight options, we saw, okay, how many people who got into that in the first seven days ended up staying with us for eight months or ended up paying? And that was the correlation coefficient. So once we looked for the highest correlation coefficient, which had to be higher than 80% uh, for us, and for us it was the active users and the specific numbers. So once you have that, I think pricing has to be correlated with that. So if you have one metric, that is the metric that is basically driving both long-term retention as well as higher likelihood of, convert, of creating an opportunity, that is a metric you should charge for because that basically is the way that you're adding value to your customer. In our case, it was active users, which again, what's important about it is when we built it, nobody was talking about active users. Like our competitor back then, which was Okta, was uh, charging for registered users. So how many users in total um, like signed up to your app? What we realized is that signing up makes no sense because it adds no value to the customer. It's about what users are logging in every month to their app. If they don't log in, they don't get value. So once we decided that, that was like, okay, this has to be our pricing metric because it's about the value. And to me, that's the main thing that I would always think about. It doesn't matter if it's usage-based, if it's seats-based, if it's subscription-based. To me, it's what is the one metric that the customer, the more value that they get, the bigger it will increase. And that's the metric that I think you should pick for setting a pricing strategy. That's, that's very interesting that you talk about linking your monetization to the aha metric uh, for the product-led growth companies. It's, it seems so simple, but then it's so complex when you get into the details, you forget about that. So uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, but have you heard uh, any challenges? Let's say if that metric comes, down, comes around to be usage, which is a very variable way of pricing, right? I mean, you could you could have bands like one to 50 users, it's that, 50 to 200, it's that. But if it is more of a real-time usage, uh, do you have any thoughts on like any, have you seen companies that are facing challenges doing usage-based billing? So for us, on this actually, the biggest challenge that we had was understanding what, was an active user. Like how exactly did we count it? So for example, somebody's trying to log in um, and they log in directly with Facebook, that is an active user. But now let's say that somebody's trying to log in and they click on Facebook, they log in and that works. But the second step is they need to do multi-factor. So they now get an SMS in their phone. They don't get it and they don't finish the login. 
does that count as an active user because we locked them in and they didn't get through security or not? What does it mean like, and why? So for us, the challenge was defining exactly what an active user is, how it works, and making sure that we were always counting it in the correct way in the data warehouse. Because if we're using that to charge our customers, it has to be predictive, it has to be always the same, and it has to be clearly defined. And to be honest, in the early days, it wasn't clearly defined. So it was a bit of a mess because we were thinking about, okay, we needed to do actually a lot of, we needed a lot of manual work uh, to make sure that we were charging customers always correctly. Um, that was in the very, very early days. Um, eventually, of course, we fixed that and then it was automated, but that was something that was a big challenge for us on, on how do we do this usage-based billing. Understood. And, and Gondo, for implying at OutZero, did you see any customer issues on billing and coding? Uh, do you remember if it was a big thing or was it like? The main issue we had on billing, the biggest one we had was we had self-service with credit cards. And when the credit card expired, uh, Stripe was trying the credit card for like three or four times and eventually stopped trying. So we actually, for a couple of years, we had people that were using the account for free for, and we didn't know. And once we figured it out, of course, we're not gonna charge them all of the time that we didn't because we fucked up. So we fixed it and we started to automate. Hey, like the credit card is wrong, you need to fix it. But that was like a big, big challenge for us on how we do billing when credit card expired or um, there was another issue with the credit card that didn't uh, raise to up to our concerns. That was one. And the other one was just, we, when, in the beginning, we didn't have like an accounts receivable person that was focusing on collecting money from the contracts. And when we didn't have that, companies were taking a lot of time to send money and we, uh, it just took forever. So we needed to add actually people to focus on the accounts receivable part um, as well. So then we made sure that people were paying. This is when they're not paying through credit card, but they're paying through an invoice. Uh, yes. Yeah, question. Um, that, that is interesting. And related to that, it was, is there an amount of money that people are comfortable putting on their credit card versus, you know, it, they want to put this an ACH or an invoice? Is there a magic number or a range? I don't think there's a magic number. And for us, we actually popped it. Um, but I can give you the example of Twilio as well. So for us, what we wanted is when the customer was paying more than $20,000 a year, we wanted to build a relationship with them. So what that meant is we were not going to allow them to pay self-service more than $20,000 a, a year. Because in that case, we want to include an account manager uh, in the account who can help them and do a bit of handholding and make sure that they are being happy. So we actually capped it, but people wanted to pay more. Another example that to me is fascinating is Twilio. So Twilio, they do also bottoms up and they do SMS and they didn't have a cap and they had customers who were paying 200K a year or 300K a year with just credit card and talking to literally nobody. And that worked for them in, in their model. I was actually, um, I would be excited to try out if that would have happened in Auxilio or not. In the end, we, we didn't make the change, but it was very interesting on how it worked for, for Twilio. So what you're saying is that people, and this is news to me, by the way, personally, that people are comfortable paying, and this is B2B customers we're talking about. So it's not like individual consumers that yes. they're willing to pay more than $20,000, $200,000 on their company credit cards uh, for a transaction. That's Yes, it was crazy to me too, but at least in Twilio, that happened often. 
Okay. Because the most challenges that I've heard is uh, uh, that if, if the transaction is more than five or $10,000, people, their companies don't allow to put that much amount on the company credit card. So there is a need to do a self-service quote on, on the web. Like people don't want to talk to a salesperson. They say, just give me a quote. It's $15,000 and I need to raise an invoice and my company will pay you. But I don't want to talk to a salesperson because that's, I know I want this. And, company- and, that, and that might make sense. I think it depends on, on the company. For us, again, we didn't allow people to pay more than 20K, but we did have a bunch of people who were paying 20K with the, with the credit cards, at least. That's, that's interesting. Uh, shifting gears a bit, Gonto, uh, do you see uh, or hear about AI ML in this, in this marketing code to cash world? Uh, do you have any opinions on that? How intelligence looks like you, you were using intelligence uh, in, in odd zero, the random forest, the, the correlation coefficient, uh, but any, any interesting things where you think are being done or should be done? To me, what's interesting about AI and ML is one is personalization. Like everybody's doing personalization. Now I think it's table stakes and personalizing what's the next page that they should see. What is the next blog post they should read? What is the next documentation page that they should read so that they don't have problems? Um, or when do they, you reach out to them? I think all of that, which is personalization, I think is a table stakes now, and most companies should start thinking about that. Big believer of this random forest and the predictive scoring as well from AI and ML. But to me, a lot of the AI and ML is gonna come with like to better, to better act for people who you still don't have an email. So you don't have a lead yet, you don't know who they are, but still, you can guess a lot of things of them based on where do they come from, what patients do they see, how much time do they stay. So, for example, we were guessing on the website based on what they saw and how much time they stay there, if they were a developer or not. We didn't even ask them. We didn't even know who they were. But we used that information to then market them differently. So I think looking at behavior and guessing stuff from people before they enter your email is, is something that I'm going to see, that I think we're going to see a lot more. And similarly, getting intense data. So for example, you get data from G2 or other services, even before you have any information from you and using that for the algorithms on personalization on the website and what you're going to be able to do, I think is another thing that I think most companies are going to start using um, sooner. That's, that's interesting. Uh, related to that, do you have any suggestions on, like companies always have a variation of good, better, best, and there are customers in, of course, each category. Uh, there's a lot of value in moving customers who are existing customers from or upgrading them to the next level. And companies struggle with how do I figure out, like, who are these users in the basic category who can be upgraded to the next one? Because these customers are already with you. Do you have any suggestions on figuring out these I don't know, growth potential customers? For those, I also believe in like predictive scoring. Like we did the same thing that we did on who is going to become an opportunity on who is going to expand from self-service to paying accounts and who's going to expand between that enterprise paying accounts. And we use that score to also send to account executives and to account managers to reach out. So for example, when we had a high score from self-service, um, we started to have account executives or SDRs reach out to them like, hey, we're seeing that your usage is increasing in this. Do you need some more help on implementing this? Like, and stuff like that, just trying to become helpful. But I think that on that, similarly, like predictive scorings on a specific metric is a very easy way to do the good, um, better grades. 
And as I said, you can build it in-house or you can use something like Matkudu or Infer who also support that as well. Got it. And Gondo, I want to touch on a little bit of de developer evangelism. Uh, I think we talked about initially that you went to different conferences and built relationships with the speakers. Uh, so any, I thought that was very interesting insight, by the way. Uh, any, any, any tricks or, uh, that you want to share with the audience on the companies that are thinking about building developer communities? I'll tell you what I have heard. People think about, should I go on Twitch? Do I, do I create a stack overflow on my website? Uh, what's, should I, should I sponsor conferences? Like what's the, what's the way to, to, to do this smartly or what are the hacks there? Could, could you share I don't think that, that yeah, actually I, I, work and okay. not work? Could you, could you share things that do not work as well as work? I don't know if there is things that you can put in each bucket, but would love to know. Yeah, so I think like, first of all, one thing to understand is like not all developers are equal. Like developers are different and it will depend on who you're targeting. So I don't think there's one silver bullet or one thing like you should do Stack Overflow or Slack or Discord or something like that. What I'm personally a big fan of is like, think about what is the service that you're building and then based off of that, start doing interviews to the target developer that you care about and ask them about how do they learn in our case? How do they learn about education? What do you want to learn? Um, where do you go? What apps do you use? And the strategy I think will come from that. So to give you an idea for us, when we interview developers um, about when do they want to learn and how do they learn about education, everybody answered the same thing, which was, I don't give a shit about authentication. I don't want to learn about it. It's boring. I will only look for authentication if I'm stuck when I need to implement it. And I will Google how to get unstuck. So based <laughs> off of that, our strategy was content marketing. And it was how-to guides on how to implement authentication with React or with other technologies or something like that. But that was the main thing for us because of that insight. Our developers that were the front-end developers, in our case, were implementing authentication, were saying that they spend a lot of time in Twitter um, following other people. So again, we tried to go to the conferences where the people they were following were there, so to build a relationship and they shared some of our content. But it all came from some of this research and everything that we tried that was not part of this research was like didn't work at all. So for example, when we switched from developers to product managers, um, well, we didn't switch. When we also targeted product managers, we thought like, okay, let's do the same. Let's write blog posts about like how to guides and stuff like that. And they were all like a complete failure. So we went back to interview product managers and the product managers we targeted was from global 2000 companies and they had specific sizes of teams. So what we learned is that product managers from smaller startups were reading blog posts. These product managers were not reading blog posts and they were growing to mind a product conference or product tank media to learn or reading from analysts. So then, okay, that's our strategy. We need to go to product tank, we need to sponsor events, but it all came from these interviews. I don't think there's a silver bullet except for actually talking to your audience to understand what they do and how they learn about it and why do they care and then create a strategy based off that. Uh, I love the specificity of it again, Gonto. But tell me this thing, did you, did you yourself were doing interviews? Was your team doing interviews? Did you uh, hire somebody to do the interviews for you? Because I see both models. Uh, I don't know if you have any opinion on that. Uh, in the beginning, I was doing them because I was the only person in the team. Um, so I was a solo person in doing the interviews. When we, were, when we targeted the product managers, we were much bigger back then. 
I didn't do any of the interviews. It was like people on my team in the growth team doing the interviews and writing the insights based off of that. But it was always out zero. I personally believe it's better to ask the questions ourselves. And it's only because of one reason. I only have three questions, like the three questions that I mentioned. But then when I start talking, when they say something, it gives me other questions and other ideas. And if somebody else does it for me, I cannot do that. And the biggest value came from the random questions that I asked when I was doing the, the call. Look, this is very fascinating. You mentioned that because I, I also from is from that same school of thought. Interesting thing comes, you know, in a in a in a regular conversation. Like I was not expecting us to talk about developer evangelism in this podcast, but it, it just so happens that we are talking about it right now. <laughs> Exactly. I'm a big believer in serendipity and randomness um, because that's the world we live in. It's all random. Yeah. And I've seen the companies, you know, they, they somewhat struggle between, you know, as I said, external agency, they have UX researchers, they have product managers and they're growth people. And they're trying to struggle, like who's going to talk to this person? Uh, and of course, this person cannot talk to the four of, four of the entities. So um, that's interesting. I, I think it depends in that case on what are you trying to solve. If it's a go-to-market strategy, it's growth. If it's a specific feature, how it works, it's product management. But getting everybody to talk to one person, and the, usually what I've seen, similarly to what you said, is the four people want to talk to them, so then nobody talks to them, which is a fantastic solution. Uh, interesting. Uh, God, this was, this was super interesting conversation. I don't know if you have any... Uh, any summary thoughts on uh, on this bottom up and top down sales motion? Because this is something that's very uh, very close to the B two B startups right now. Like everybody wants to do product led growth, and but there are some things where I think product led growth, per, I personally think, does not apply well. Uh, but uh, any any closing thoughts on on that? To me, product led growth will work on like it's two main things to me about product led growth. One is the user, actually three, the user must be willing to try things out and to try a product. There are some users that are more likely to try things out, others that do not. So if they do not try things out, of course, it's not going to work. Second, that they should see value with a small implementation. So for example, without Cideo, you could implement it for one small thing or for one more small team, and it worked. You didn't have to implement it to all of the applications to get value from it. If you need to implement something across the entire corporation to get value, that is not product like, like you cannot do product like growth. You have to have a unit of value with one, two, three, four people, not more than that. If they do not get value there, I don't think it makes sense to do um, product like growth. And the other one is you, can, you should do product like growth if the person who is the user has enough power in the organization where they will be able to talk and try to convince the decision maker or the buyer, or if the user is the same as the buyer. Usually the user is not the buyer. And if that's the case, they should at least be able to influence the decision. If they don't have influence power, again, I don't think product growth makes sense. Awesome. Uh, this is a, a great way to sort of end our conversation, Gonto. But before we let you go, would you have any recommendation on a resource like a book or a podcast or a blog that you'd like to recommend to the audience? Um, so I always recommend the same book. My favorite book is Thinking Fast and Slow. Like to me, it helps you understand how our brains think and everything we do is related to that. So if you understand how the brain works, then you're much better at making sure what to say to people and why to get the message um, across. 
So by far, at least for me, Thinking Fast and Slow has been one of the best books that I, I've read in my life. Awesome. Hey, with that, uh, uh, thank you again, Gancha, for your time. This was a very fascinating conversation. Thank you for inviting.